Good morning, church family. Have you ever been on a long road trip? I'm not talking about sitting in Dallas traffic for over an hour. I'm talking about you, you get in your car, you drive 8, 10 miles, and you actually get out of Texas. You make it to another state. That kind of road trip. What makes those kind of road trips fun is all the preparation that goes in beforehand. So if you're going on a long road trip, maybe you pack some extra snacks, you have a special playlist you're going to listen to, you pick out a good podcast. You know, you bring extra pillows and blankets and you make the car extra comfortable. Maybe you have specific spots you're going to go to. Restaurants you know you want to stop at and places you want to eat or you're going to detour off and see the sights on the way. You, you have a plan for your road trip. And if you're the driver, maybe you take priority over that playlist and that podcast and make sure that you get to enjoy the, the, the ride as well. Amen. Now, <laughs> the, the goal of the road trip isn't to see how comfortable you can make your vehicle. The goal of the road trip is not to see how many McDonald's bathrooms you can use. It's not to see how many Cracker Barrels you can eat at. The goal of the road trip is to reach the destination. So in planning your trip, you want to put most of your time and effort and planning into the destination. You know, we're going to Grandma's house, we're going to the Grand Canyon, we're going wherever it is. You're, you put your investment into wherever the destination is. And yet, a little time and effort and money is saved for the trip itself. Let's make the trip comfortable. Let's, let's invest in the trip as well. But you can't have the trip without the destination, and yet you can't have the destination without the trip. Both of these things are necessary. This morning, we're returning to the story of Jacob. We left him alone uh, a few chapters ago, if you remember, from a few weeks ago. We're returning back to his story now. And if you remember from last week, his sons have finally come home. He had, he had sent his sons out. He had sent Benjamin, his youngest, with the hopes that they were going to return with Benjamin safe and Simeon freed from the Egyptian prison. He has been waiting. His sons have been delayed. And he's hoping and praying. He had prayed and blessed them as they went. He had sent this gift of the last of his little things, his balm and his pistachios and some other things. And he's been waiting and waiting. And they've been delayed now. And he's wondering and worrying what has come of his, become of his sons and then we saw at the end of last week's chapter that they have finally come back. And there were 11 sons. Benjamin made it back safe. Simeon's been returned to him. Praise God. They have food. And where did they get all these wagons? Ooh, that's a lot more than they, they came back with. They've come back with all these wagons. And they tell him news that he never thought he would hear. Joseph is alive. And not just alive, he's in charge of Egypt. And not just in charge of Egypt, he has sent wagons filled with good things to take you to him, to take you to Egypt. The famine's going to last five more years, but he's going to ride out the rest of the famine in Egypt under the rule of his lost son. And, and he's going to be safe and protected and reunited. And, and, and Jacob passes out almost with, with just shock. He can't believe this truth. How could Joseph not only be alive after being dead for so many years, but be in charge of Egypt and rescuing him? He wouldn't have believed it, but here are all of these carts, all of these animals, luxur luxuries of Egypt spilling out of them. Proof that his son is real, his rescuer is real, and, and he, he can't help but even in his old age be ready to make one final road trip. So he's preparing to make this final trip to Egypt. Look with me at this morning's passage, chapter 46. This morning's thesis is that God brings all his people home to himself. God brings all his people 
home to himself. We'll take this, our, our, our passage this morning in three sections. Verses, verses 1 through 7, the journey begins in faith. Verses 8 through 27, the family is counted. And then verse 28 through 34, we'll finally see the reward achieved. Follow along as I read the first section. Verses 1 through 7, the journey begins in faith. So Israel took his journey with all that he had, and he came to Beersheba. And he offered sacrifices to the God of his father Isaac. And God spoke to Israel in visions of that night and said, Jacob, Jacob. And he said, here I am. Then he said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for there I will make you into a great nation. I myself will go down with you into Egypt, and I will also bring you up again. And Joseph's hands shall close your eyes. Then Jacob set out from Beersheba. The sons of Israel carried Jacob, their father, their little ones, their wives, and the wagons that Pharaoh had sent to carry him. They also took their livestock, all of their goods, which they had gained in the land of Canaan, and came to Egypt. Jacob and all his offspring with him, his sons and his sons' sons with him, and all their daughters and their sons' daughters, all his offspring he brought with him into Egypt. You'll notice in verse 1 that Joseph's first stop on his road trip is Beersheba. Now, when I go on a road trip, my first stop is usually a gas station. I like to top up my gas tank. I like to get some extra snacks. I like to get a cold drink to drink, you know, something to help keep me awake, something caffeinated, maybe a Dr. Pepper or one of those Starbucks energy drinks, something to keep me energized while I listen. I make sure my podcast is downloaded correctly and ready to go so I can start my journey off right. But, but Jacob starts his journey by going to Beersheba, to the altar of his father, to pray and thank God. He recognizes that God has performed for him a miracle beyond what he could have ever imagined. He's had his prayers answered more than he can possibly imagine, and he wants to start this journey off by praising God, but also in seeking God's guidance, because God has, for generations now, told him that the promised land was in Canaan, and he wants to make sure that it's okay for him to leave Canaan behind and go to Egypt. And God assures him. God says, yes, you are supposed to move. So in these verses here, he's God is pivoting. He's saying the promised land is going to be Canaan. But for a generation or two, the promised land will be in Egypt. That is where I'm going to incubate. That is where I'm going to grow the nation of Israel. But don't miss verse 2. When God calls Jacob, Jacob's response is, here I am. And it's, it's such a simple statement. Here I am, Lord. He's, he's there. And this, this here I am statement repeats over and over throughout the Bible. Here I am. And I know we're early in the sermon, but I, I want to go ahead and challenge you already. When God calls you to something, when God is leading you to something, is the posture of your heart, here I am. And, and do you know God's voice well enough to recognize when he is calling you? And is the posture of your heart ready to follow? Think about it with me for a moment. We, we know from Scripture that Satan seeks to, to twist and, and imitate God's voice. And he knows how to, to speak to us in a way where we may think God is calling for us to something. So it's so important for us to hear and recognize God's voice. How do we recognize God's voice? Simply put, we know the Scriptures. God has said, the Bible is my words. So if we know the Bible, we know God's words, we can match God's words up with what we think God is leading us to. And if what we feel we are being called to is aligned with Scripture, then there's a very good chance that is what God is calling us to. And we can pray and we can seek outside counsel, but we always want to start with Scripture because that will allow us to make sure we're rightly hearing God's Word. But 
even if we know God's word, even if we know our Bible well, is our heart posture, God, here I am. I'm ready. If you have small children and you ask them to do something, what do they always say? Five more minutes, ten more minutes, let me finish what I'm doing. And us, you know, as adults mostly in this room, when God calls us to something, how often do we do the same thing our children do? God, I know you want me to go. I know you want me to do. I know you want me to sacrifice. You want me to share my faith, but I'm busy. I'm tired. I need to do this. I need to do that. And it's so easy for our posture to be like, hold up a second, God. I need to finish my stuff first. And yet Jacob, in his old age, seeks the Lord's wisdom and says, Lord, here I am. I will go wherever you send me. Even if that means I have to uproot my entire family, three or four generations of family I'm going to take with me. We're going to uproot everything. We're going to move the flocks. We're going to move the tent poles that haven't been touched for years. Everything's up being uprooted because you are sending me. And if you send me, I am here and I'm ready to go. I think we can learn from Jacob's posture and the way that he approaches the Lord. I am here and I'm ready to obey whatever you have to say, Lord. And, and Take this as a, as, a, as a passage to challenge our own hearts. God, am, am I listening for your guiding and am I ready to serve you and to obey wherever you go? So, so what is God calling Jacob to? I'll look in verse 3 to 4. He's calling him to go down to Egypt and there Israel will be made a great nation. And Goshen, this area of Egypt, that is going to be the promised land for the coming generations. So then we see them loading into the wagons. Now, Michael talked last week about how the wagons are, are representative. They're more than just, a, 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 just, a, just wagons. They're representative. And so the, the whole family is loaded up. They have all of these gifts to help them on their travels. And the wagons prove that Joseph is alive. These are the proof. They're not, it's proof that Joseph is alive and that here is now the method to get to Joseph. Now, there is a, a false application that we can make with the wagons. So I want to just take a moment to help you kind of wrestle with Scripture and see a way that you could take this passage the wrong way, and then we'll make a correct application. So the wrong way to look at a passage like this. If you remember, Jacob had given up his sons. He'd given up Benjamin, his precious son. He'd given up his balm and his pistachios and a few other little things. He gave it up, and he was trusting God, and now God has sent wealth and wagons full of wealth back to him. And it'd be easy for a, your televangelist, your prosperity gospel preacher, to look at something like this and say, if you just give up your little bit, you know, if you just write a check to our station, God is going to send you wagons of riches. Why is that wrong? Well, I'll give you three reasons why you would not want to take a passage like this. The first is this is a descriptive text, not prescriptive. It's not telling us that if you just give up a little bit, God will give you all of the material wealth in the world. The second, and this is why I bring it up, is because God cares about Jacob's heart. God wasn't asking Jacob to give up his pistachios or, or even just give up Benjamin. He wanted Jacob's trust in him. He wanted Jacob's heart to be in the right place, and now it is. Now he's worshiping God. Now he's trusting God, and God is rewarding his trust. And the reward, thirdly here, is that is not the carts, it's not the wealth, it's not material wealth. God is rewarding Jacob for his trust, not with ma just material wealth, but more importantly, with restoration, with reunion. He's bringing the family of God back together. He's bringing him back into the fold and restoring him. So to take a passage like this and to get caught up on, say, the wealth of the wagons, 
Well, if, if that was the point of this text, then Jacob would have taken the wealth out of the wagons, piled it up, and said, hey, I'll tell, tell Joseph to send me more next month. You know, but he doesn't do that. He says, no, we're going to Egypt. We're going to be restored in the land of Goshen. I will hug my son. And restoration is what the picture is. So the message of the wagons, rightly a pride. The wagons, as Michael expertly pointed out last week, the wagons represent the church. Think about this. The wagons prove the existence, the prove the life of Joseph, that he is who he said he is, he did what he said he's done, and they're the means to Joseph. The church is proof that Jesus is who he says he is, and the church is God's means, God's vessel, God's transport on our way to Jesus. We are called to be in the church as we grow towards Jesus in this world and as we prepare for to meet Jesus in the next world. So God gathers his people together to show a watching world his love. Think about this. How does the church represent that Jesus is alive? Well, in John 13, 35, Jesus says, By this all people will know you are my disciples, the church being the proof of Jesus. If you have love for who? For one another. Yes, it's, we are called to be, to be loving towards everybody, but the way we are known in the world, the way that the church proves that Jesus did what he said he did and is who he says he is, is by the way we love each other, the way the church loves one another. This is why it's important we have church membership, so we know who we are and who we're supposed to love. We come together, we gather together, we love one another from all walks of life, as sinful, broken people, and that proves that there is a God in heaven, that Jesus has died on the cross, and that the tomb is empty. We are the proof to a watching world in it the way that we care and love for one another. And who are the one another? For, uh, 1 John 2, 9 states this in the opposite. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brothers is still in darkness. Do you hear the warning here? If you say, I'm a Christian, but you can't stand to be around other Christians. I'm a Christian, but I refuse to join the church. Oh, I'm a Christian. I love God, but I, all these other Christians are fake. That kind of language betrays that you do not know Jesus because you do not know his family. That's why it's so dangerous. Now, part of loving Jesus, part of being a Christian is watching out for heresy. It's watching out for those who twist scripture. Well, you know, we talked about that a second ago, but you know, that, that is something we can hate. That is something we can stand against. Not everybody who says the name Lord, Lord, who says Jesus is my Savior, knows the Lord. But where somebody is preaching the gospel rightly or teaching the gospel rightly or living out the gospel in their lives, we are called to love them and by our love of other Christians, love for one another, that is how the world knows who we are. That is why it is so important that our faith is defined in the context of the church. And secondly, the church provides the means of travel to Jesus. What does this mean? Well, look at what Jacob does. Like I said, he, he doesn't jump in the wagon and leave his family behind or send the wagons off to go get more riches back to himself. His whole family is in the church. Did you hear how many people that was? It was his children and his children's children and his children's children. Generations. Everybody get in the car. We're taking all of the animals. We're taking all of the tent posts. Everyone is going to the land of Goshen. And I think there's some practical application for this as we think about the church. The idea that your children should not be part of your faith or that you should let your children decide on their own if they want to believe in God is a horrific idea. That should be something that we don't tolerate. That's, that's an awful idea. We are to teach our children and raise them up in the fear and admonition of the Lord. 
Proverbs 22.6 says, Train up a child in the way he should go. Even when he is old, he will not depart from him. So yes, like Jacob, bring the great-great-grandchildren. If you have children, if you want to have children, plan on raising them from the earliest days to begin to wrestle with what it means to have a creator, what it means to be a sinner, and what it means to need a Savior, and that our Savior is Jesus, that it is finished on the cross, and if they call out to him, grace is freely available. And this also teaches us that private faith, this idea that my faith is private to just me, it's not a biblical idea. You can't be a Christian, but keep your faith to yourself. You occasionally might hear that in an interview from a celebrity. Oh, I'm a Christian, but I don't want to talk about it. If you're a Christian, that should spill over. Yes, we have private devotions. Yes, you should get on your knees before God when no one else is in the room. Absolutely have a prayer relationship with God, a personal relationship with Jesus. But that relationship spills over. It'd be like if you were married, but nobody knew you had a spouse. It's absurd. You talk about your relationships with other people. You talk about your best friend, your spouse, your girlfriend, your boyfriend in your daily conversations. If, if you do not talk about your relationship with Jesus, how can you say that there is a relationship? And so we are called to have our, our personal relationship with Jesus spill over publicly into our lives. And, and it's, it's very obvious to all of the Canaanites. Jacob and his family are leaving. They can't help but notice all these tents going up, all these flocks being moved. All of Canaan was probably aware that, that old Jacob has uprooted everything to go to Goshen. Why? Because his son is alive. Why do we change the way we live? Because our Jesus is alive. Why did Jacob change everything? Because Joseph was alive. Do you see that beautiful parallel here? The whole family is to follow God's direction. The whole family is going to Goshen. They're not all going their separate ways. It's not you go this way and you go that way and we'll fan out and hopefully that'll help us stave off the famine. And so for the church, our direction is God's direction. Our great commission is God's great commission. We are called as a church to raise up worshipers, to seek the, the, the salvation of those in every tribe and nation and language as we heard read in Revelation 7. We're called to raise up disciples who know Jesus and who can teach others and raise up more disciples, who raise up more disciples until Jesus comes again. That is our calling as a church. And so we rally together to fulfill this mission, just as Jacob's family is rallying together to all go the same direction to Goshen. So now that we've seen how the journey has started and we see our mission, we see Jacob's mission to Goshen, let's, let's look at how the family is arranged. Look, at me at, look with me at verses 8 through 27. It's time to read some names. All right. Now these are the names of the descendants of Israel who came to Egypt. Jacob and his sons. Reuben, Jacob's firstborn, and the sons of Reuben. Hanok, Palu, Hezron, and Carmi. The sons of Simeon, Jemuel, Jamin, Ohad, Jachin, Johar, Johar, and Shaul. Sons of a Canaanite woman. The sons of Levi, Gershon, Kohath, and Merari. The sons of Judah, Er, Onan, Shelah, Perez, and Zerah. But Er and Onan died in the land of Canaan. The sons of Perez were Herzron and Hamul. The sons of Issachar, Tola, Puva, and Yob, Shamron. The sons of Zebulun, Sered, Elon, and Jalil. These are the sons of Leah, who she bore to Jacob in Padaram, together with his daughter Dinah. Altogether, his sons and his daughters, number 33. The sons of Gad, 
Ziphion, Haggai, Shuni, Esbon, Eri, Erodai, and Erelai, sons of Asher, Imna, Ishva, Ishvi, Bera, with Sarah their sister, and the sons of Beria, Heber, and Milchil. These are the sons of Zilpah, who Laban gave to Leah his daughter, and who was born to Jacob 16 persons. The sons of Rachel, Jacob's wife, Joseph and Benjamin, to Joseph in the land of Egypt were born Manasseh and Ephraim, whom Asenath, the daughter of Potiphar, the priest of On, bore to him. And the sons of Benjamin, Bela, Becher, Ashbel, Gera, Naaman, Ahi, Rosh, Mupin, Hupin, and Ard. These are the sons of Rachel, who were born to Jacob, 14 persons in all. The sons of Dan, Hushim, the sons of Naphtali, Jazil, Guni, Jezer, and Shalem. These are the sons of Bilhal, whom Laban gave to Rachel his daughter, and who she bore to Jacob, seven persons in all. All the persons belonging to Jacob, who came into Egypt, who were his own descendants, not including Jacob's sons' wives, were 66 persons in all. And all the sons of Joseph, who were born to him in Egypt, were two. All the persons of the house of Jacob, who came into Egypt, were 70. All right. So we see this, this large count. And if you're wondering how you get from 66 to 70, it's two sons plus Jacob plus uh, Joseph. So that's how we get up to 70. Uh, and you'll notice that they count daughters, but not grandson, most of the grandsons and granddaughters. They don't count most of the wives or any of the wives, I don't think. Um, but this whole count is carried out in such a way to number, to number the, the, the heirs. Some of the daughters are numbered. So what's the point? Why is it structured like this? You'll notice it's laid out by the different wives of Jacob. Well, it all comes down to that last section there. All the persons of the house of Jacob who came into Egypt were 70. 70, if you remember, 7 being the number of completion. So what it's saying there is all of the people who came into Egypt were the complete number, all of the number. And there's this understanding that there is a numbered amount of people, but then you have grandsons and granddaughters and servants and people kind of in their, their gathering. There's an almost an uncountable group of people. And if you remember in Revelation 7, in Revelation 7, there's a counting of the tribes and everyone is numbered and rounded to a, to a whole number. And then after that, it says in verse 9 that we read, after this I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation. So there's an important picture, a numbering of the people, and then there's more sons and daughters and wives than can be counted. And, and what is God teaching us in this? God is saying, I know how many people there are. Jacob knows how many grandchildren he has. But to anybody else looking, you won't be able to number the throng. Jacob knows how many people there are, and there's a count, but there's a lot more people in Jacob's party than just the 70. And in the book of Revelation, God says, I know every one of my people. But if you try to count them, there are a multitude that you can't count. There's more people than you can possibly imagine who are going into heaven. And we see this beautiful parallel between these two passages here as well. God knows all of his people. Just like Jacob knows all of his children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren. He knows who his family is. Now, we have to ask the question then, who is God's people? If, if, if this is a representation of God's people, Revelation 7, I think, makes it clear who God's people are. Well, God's people are from every tribe, every nation, and every language. People from all over the earth are God's people. God is saving a multitude. And, and you'll notice, too, from Revelation 7, that God knows that there will be an uncountable multitude saved, that they'll be from all of the nations, but also 
that there will be tribulation. He knows the suffering of his people. And, and I want you to count this. There's a lot of speculation about what exactly is the tribulation. But I think there's a, a simpler truth that's easy to get lost when, when grappling with Revelation, and it's this. God knows all of his people, and he knows all of the suffering of his people. And, and you know, if, turn to Revelation 7 if you're not there. Notice that last verse, verse 17. For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. And he will guide them to springs of living water. And God will wipe every tear from their eyes. God knows not just all of his people, but all of their suffering. And he gives them to Jesus, the good shepherd. And every one of their pains, every one of their sufferings, every one of their trials is wiped away. Everything is healed. Every tear is dry. God fully cares for his people because he knows his people. And this is so important for us to recognize. What, what is the, the application of this? How do we apply a grand truth like this that God knows and heals his people? I give you several applications. The first is that this changes the way we do evangelism, the way we share our faith with others. Uh, in Acts 18, 9 through 11, God tells Paul to witness to the Corinthians because he has many people who are saved there. It says this, the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you and no one will attack you to harm you. For I have many in the city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months teaching God's word among them. Think about this. God is saying two things. He's saying, I am going to protect you from those who want to harm you. I will stop their hand. And I have people in the city I am planning to save, and I have chosen you to be the one to preach to them. And so Paul obeys God, takes action, and goes into the city preaching and proclaiming the gospel boldly to the city of Corinth, knowing God will protect him and knowing God will save Corinthians. And he does, and a church is raised up. And to you, I'd encourage you with this. As you pray for the nations, as you think about the nations, as you meet people in our city from the nations, because it seems as if all of the nations live in Dallas, as you witness to people from other cultures, God has promised us to save every tribe, nation, and language. So when you share your faith with somebody who doesn't speak English as a first language, when you share your faith with somebody who's different than you, you can do so in confidence knowing God is not just the God of one nation or another nation. He's not the God of people who speak English. He's the God of all nations. And he has people he is going to save. When you share your faith, you're sharing in confidence knowing that God is going to work over and over, a multitude of times. Throughout history, God is going to work more times than we can count. We can't count the multitude of times that God is going to save people and save people from other cultures, save people from backgrounds we couldn't imagine people being saved from. You know, praise God, it's not on us to be winsome. It's on the gospel to work in their hearts. And this, this gives us such assurance. It takes the Otis, the burden off of us. It's not on, on us to be manipulative, to try to, to, to hide or twist or distort the gospel, to make it more palatable. We can share our faith, faith honestly, openly with those around us, knowing that God is going to be the one to bring the increase. In John 10, 25 through 30, Jesus says this, I told you and you do not believe. The work that I do in my Father's name bears witness about me. But you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of my father's hand. 
I and my Father are one. And again, we hear this, this powerful, potent message. Jesus says, I know who my sheep are. There's no surprises. Every sheep is counted. Every sheep is known by name. God has given every single one to me, and I will not lose them. This is how God thinks of his people. This is how Jesus thinks of us. He will not lose us if we are his people. He makes plain he knows who his own are. And so when we, when we think about this, we need to think about God's people as collective, not additive. What does this mean? This means that, that God is not waiting and hoping to see if anybody wants to sign up for this Christian thing. He's not hoping that you know, maybe somebody will like Jesus enough to want to be a Christian. God knows who his people are. The invitation has gone out. He speaks over and over, as Jesus does, as the, the bridegroom and the bride and the, the guests at the wedding. You know, if you are being called, you are being called as a guest on the guest list, not as somebody who might, you know, sign up for something on a college campus and maybe I'll show up if I feel like it. No, you're on the guest list, friends. And, and if you feel your sin, you feel your need of Jesus, then you are recognizing that God is calling you to him and that Jesus knows you as his sheep. And yes, we struggle with our, with our assurance of faith. And maybe you're in a season where you're not sure if you're saved or not, or your loved ones are saved or not. And yeah, there's that multitude we can't count. We don't know everyone who is and isn't saved. We're not called to know that. But we can rest assured knowing that God knows who his people are and who they're going to be. God know, Jesus knows who his sheep are. And if, if his sheep are wounded, if you can't run to Jesus because you're so dragged down by your sin, by guilt, by shame, you, if you are Jesus' sheep, will cry out to him, and he will come to you. He says he leaves the 99. He will go to you. He will rescue you, snatch you out of the jaws of the lion, and heal you. Jesus does not lose his sheep. Though you stray into the far country for, for months or weeks or decades, Jesus will not lose you. He will go after you, and he will bring back his own and heal them. And, and this does not minimize our need of response, our, our obligation of our own will. We are called to recognize that Jesus has called to us. We are called to cry out to him. We are called to not lie still and wait for Jesus to hopefully find us as fatalists, but to use our will, to use the way that God has designed us, our mind, our intellect, to call out to him and say, Jesus, you have called me to the supper. You have called me to be your sheep. Come get me. Come find me. Come bring me in. Friends, if the Holy Spirit has opened your eyes, if you recognize your need of a Savior, then you can know that Jesus is calling you. You do not need to worry if, if you're on the guest list, if you are one of Jesus' sheep. If you hear his voice, run towards him. He says, I will not cast out. If you come to Jesus, then you are his sheep. And he will not lose you. He promises this. And so, in our evangelism, in the way we speak of the gospel, let us, let us plead the blood of Jesus. Let us plead the salvation not as something that maybe you hopefully will like, but as something that is true, something that is powerful, something that is assured, having confidence in our faith, not ashamed and embarrassed to speak of sin and, 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 and guilt and, and eternal punishment, but recognizing that there is truth and hope and joy if you will only reach out and cry out to our Lord and Savior Jesus. And we have nothing to fear, nothing to be ashamed of in the gospel and how we present it to others. Knowing that God has promised us that where we share our faith, where we share the gospel, the gospel will save and change lives. 
over and over again as multitudes are saved from all of the nations, and including our own nation, including our own city, including our own college campuses and workplace, God will save a people. He has promised us this. Now that we've seen how God has counted the family of, of, of Jacob, how they are both numbered and innumerable, and how God is bringing them into a mission, into his promise, none are left behind. No one stays behind in Canaan to, to suffer the famine by themselves. All are brought in. All are loaded on the wagon, from the smallest child to the oldest Jacob. They're all taken in. Let us look now at verses 28 through 34. The reward is finally achieved. Verse 28. He had sent Judah ahead of him to Joseph to show the way before him to Goshen. And they came into the land of Goshen. Then Joseph prepared his chariots and went up to meet Israel, his father in Goshen. He presented himself to him and fell on his neck and wept on his neck a good while. Israel said to Joseph, now let me die since I've seen your faith and I know that you are still alive. Joseph said to his brothers and to his father's household, I will go up and tell Pharaoh and will say to him, my brothers, that my father's household who are in the land of Canaan have come to me. And the men are shepherds, for they have been keepers of livestock and have brought their flocks and their herds and all that they have. When Pharaoh calls to you and says, what is your occupation? You shall say, your servants have been keepers of livestock from our youth. Even until now, now we and our fathers. In order that you may dwell in the land of Goshen, for every shepherd is an abomination to the Egyptians. Now, the land of Goshen is thought to be on the eastern side of the Nile. It's close to the Nile, but not right up against it. It's right against the delta. And it's on the other side of the Sinai Peninsula. So you can imagine Jacob coming down through Canaan. If you know the map and the geography, crossing through the wilderness of the Negev, where they've been grazing field, their flocks, through the desert of the Sinai Peninsula, and then coming into the land of Goshen. You'll notice in verse 28, Judah is leading the way once again. He's the leader of the brothers, and this is, of course, pointing ahead that he's going to be the line of kings. This is a little bit of foreshadowing to what's going to come later in a few, in a few books of the Bible. And notice in verse 29 that Joseph meets his father in Goshen. He doesn't go to, go to Canaan to get him. He doesn't meet him on the border. And he doesn't bring him to his palace because he's living in a really nice, nice palace that's second to, to Pharaoh. He goes and meets him in Goshen. Why does he do that? He does that because he wants his father to see the land, to see the place of healing, of safety that he has prepared for him. That is where he wants the meeting to take place. Goshen represents more than just a good place to, to have some sheep. Goshen is the land of restoration. He wants his father to recognize, here is the place where our family is going to be made a whole again. We love each other. Remember last chapter, he kissed his brothers. Every single one of his brothers he kissed. Even Simeon, who, who betrayed him, his other brothers who betrayed him. He loves his whole family. These brothers are being knit together. And here in Goshen, with all of his brothers present, they hug and kiss and love each other. There is a, a true family restoration taking place. And it is in Goshen that restoration happens. And you'll, you'll notice as well, uh, Jacob's response in verse 30. He says, Now let me die, since I have seen your face and know that you are alive. 
What he's, he's not being fatalist here or suicidal. What he's saying is God has answered my prayers in ways beyond what I could ever imagine. I have seen the goodness of God on such vi- vivid display. I, I'm beholding the face of my dead son clothed in all the riches of Egypt. And, and I know now the goodness of God and I can't wait to be in his presence. He is content. He is satisfied. He has seen his story come to its conclusion. He knows that it points ahead to the goodness of what God has done in the life of his family. And, and because of that, he is ready to be before God. And I, and I hope that uh, when, when it is my time to pass, that this is my testimony as well. I've seen God my whole life. I've seen my prayers answered. I have seen the gospel go forward another generation. And now I can't wait to be in the presence of the Lord. I think there's, there's, there's something poignant to that. And then we come to verse 31 through 34. Joseph has one more scheme. Now, when I hear Joseph saying, all right, brothers, come here, I've got a scheme for you, an idea for you. I'm a little nervous because up until this point, their family is known for bad schemes. You know, she's not my wife. She's my sister. You know, let's, let's trade the sheep that are striped. So far, most of the schemes in their family have been pretty dishonest. Let's lie. Let's scheme. Let's steal a birthright. Let's cause problems. So when Joseph is calling his brothers together to coach them on what to say, it makes me a little nervous from experience. But what is Joseph's scheme? And I think there's some irony here. His scheme is to tell the truth. He says, I'm going to tell the truth to Pharaoh. My family are shepherds. We're all shepherds. We've always been shepherds. Let us be shepherds. And then he tells them, guys, when you speak to Pharaoh, don't make stuff up. Don't be like our father and our father and his father before him. Don't try to impress the Pharaoh with some kind of story about being magistrates or whatever. Just tell him the truth. Say we're shepherds and they're going to put us in Goshen, the area where the shepherds live. This is where we want to be. We don't need to lie to get the good things of God. And I think it's poignant that after so many schemes and so many strivings, that Joseph here tells his brothers, just be honest with Pharaoh. We can be honest We can do what Abraham should have done and Isaac should have done and Jacob and be be honest with a foreign leader and God is going to bless our family. And that's exactly what happens. Pharaoh puts them in the land of Goshen. Now, you'll notice in this text that it mentions, kind of foreshadows that there's some animosity between the Egyptian farmers and shepherds. Why is that? Well, if you know anything about Egypt, Egypt's economy, their, their source is the Nile River, and it floods every year, right? And there's this very rich mud, this deposit of silt that's left behind. And the Egyptians were masters of agriculture. They, they irrigated and they used this mud to grow massive amounts of crops. They spent seven years growing enough crops to feed basically the world. This is their source of income. And rich mud is great for crops. Rich mud is terrible for animals. They get stuck in it. They wreck the crops. They don't want any sheep or goats or anything messing up their crops and getting stuck in the mud. And so the Egyptians kind of say, all right, if you're going to raise sheep, you've got to go do that over in Goshen. Goshen's a beautiful land. It's, it's great for, sh- for flocks. It's actually green. But we want to farm over here on the Nile. Keep your animals out of our farming land. And so there's a separation of the farmers and the shepherds. And so Pharaoh gives this land of Goshen that the Egyptians reject over to the, uh, the Hebrews. So they're given the land of Goshen. And now this is going to be a great place to graze. And I, I think there's something poignant here, a, a little bit of a parallel, because in Psalm 118, t- verse 22, it says, 
the stone that the builders have rejected has become the chief cornerstone. And I think we can say from this text that the land the Egyptians rejected, the land that the, the Pharaoh has given up, has become the salvation of the Hebrews. This is where their flocks are going to thrive for the next five years. This is where in the land of Goshen, the Hebrews are going to become a mighty nation and God is going to protect them. Pharaoh has no idea that this piece of land that he's surrendering over, this, this good grazing land, is going to become the thing that, that builds the wealth, that builds the family of God. And, and the one who is rejected, in a sense almost ironically pointing to Jesus, the Jesus who is rejected by the Pharisees and the Sadducees, by the Romans, is the Jesus who saves the world. He is the chief cornerstone. And so we see that a little bit in Goshen, where the Egyptians, the Pharaoh, gives up Goshen and says, ah, the Hebrews can have that. And so they take it and they settle there, and that is where God raises up his people. Now let's, as we close this morning, begin to put some of the pieces together. If Jacob and his sons are representing God's people on a journey, the wagons are pointing us towards the church, Joseph has been a picture of Christ, has gone to prepare a place for his family in Goshen. I hope you can guess what Goshen represents by this point. If it's not obvious, oh well. Goshen is a picture of heaven. It is a picture of the place that he has gone ahead to prepare for us. Now think for a moment about, about Joseph's story alongside Jesus' story. They both suffered unjustly. They both saved their people, returned from the dead. They both seek reconciliation of the family. They both go to prepare a place of safety, healing, and rest. For Joseph, it's to, to last out the famine for a generation. And for Jesus, it's heaven for all eternity, a greater Goshen. Heaven is our greater Goshen. And so let's, let's ask this question. What can we learn about heaven as we study Goshen in this particular passage from, first, from chapter 46? Well, a couple of things that we can learn about heaven. The first is that Goshen is characterized by reunion. And heaven as well is characterized by reunion. In heaven, we will be united with Jesus. Heaven is where we will hug Jesus. We will cry on Jesus' neck and say, thank you, Lord. Where Jesus will hug and say, I love you. You are my son. You are my daughter. Just as Jacob goes into Goshen and immediately hugs Joseph. So when we go into heaven, we will immediately be in the arms of our Savior. And, and this is a beautiful reminder. And not only that, Goshen is a place where the family is reunited and restored. Heaven will be where we are restored and reunited with those who have come before us, Christians who have, who have gone and passed away, Christians who are coming after us. All, of, all Christians will be united together in heaven. And it will be a place marked by reunion, by celebration, and by joy. Goshen also is marked as a place of plenty. They are doubly protected in Goshen. They have Joseph next door to send as much of the Egyptian grain as they want, and they have this beautiful farmland that the Egyptians haven't really noticed was as good as they thought it was. And so their, their flocks are going to grow and increase. Israel's going to get stronger and stronger in Goshen, and, and Joseph's going to protect them. And so in heaven, We'll have unabounding abundance of wealth. You know, the, the streets of gold are easy to think about. Land flowing with milk and honey, and yet we'll have Jesus there as well. Jesus to provide for us, to care for us, and to take care of us. Even better than Joseph does for his family. And so heaven, like Goshen, is marked as a place of, of plenty, of abundance. And finally, Goshen is a place for Jacob's family. And heaven is is a place for God's family. There is an exclusivity to Goshen and there's an exclusivity to heaven. 
We see this, we'll see this contrast made even more apparent next week when we look at chapter 47. The, the Egyptians do not get Goshen. They do not get the blessing of Goshen. The blessing of Goshen is exclusively for Jacob's people. And so when we think about heaven, heaven is exclusively a benefit and a, bon and a, and a blessing for God's people. Those who reject Jesus lose heaven. They do not get access into heaven. You do not get sanctified or justified upon death. Your, your death determines your place in judgment, but it does not save you. Your salvation is in Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. So if your heart has turned to Jesus, if you have cried out to him, if he is your good shepherd, then he will lead you, his flock, into Goshen, just as Jacob's family led their flocks into Goshen. If you would be part of the flock in Goshen, then you must be under the good shepherd. And so the flocks, of, the flocks of Jacob show us that our place is by the side of our good shepherd as we are taken into heaven. So I conclude this morning, I would challenge you with this. Where are you on your journey in your life? Have you heard the call? Have you heard God calling you to trust Christ, to save you from your sins, to repent and flee from evil, to put your trust in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior of your life? Do you know the God of the Bible well enough to recognize Him, to calling you to Himself? If you're struggling to understand God's will for your salvation, if you're struggling to know if you are a Christian or not, come talk to me, talk to a friend you came with, talk to a church member. We would love to help you dig into those hard questions and, and wrestle with what it means to know Jesus. And for those of you who know the Lord, who know Christ, my question to you is this. Do you see yourself and your church as God's family and that He is bringing you to Himself? Do you actively see how God is working to bring us home and bring us together? It's, it's so easy to put down roots and to chase your career, to, to find a spouse or to, to raise your kids or to do all of the things of this world and to get distracted. Friends, if you're in a busy season of life, and let's be honest, most of us are, I'd encourage you, meditate on what it means that we're on a journey, that our final stop is heaven, not this world, not what we have for lunch this afternoon, not what we're doing tomorrow. Our final resting place is in heaven. And there in heaven, we will be showered with, with gifts, with rewards, with joy, with healing beyond what this world could, could ever bring us. Now, that doesn't diminish the joy that we find in the church, the joy you find in all of the gifts God has given us in this life. But I would encourage you, friends, don't let the sorrows of this life blind you from the joys that are coming in the next one. Don't be so caught up in everything that's going on now that you forget to remember what's coming ahead Life is short and it will go by quickly. And then we have all of eternity with our Savior. So I'd encourage you, find time, even in those busy moments, to meditate on that. To remind yourself of the goodness, the healing, the reunion that's coming. Find your joy in the Lord, my friends. This in no way diminishes what God is doing here and now, but instead should help us more urgently to see our journeys end when Christ comes. Pray that Christ would come soon and that our journey, when it comes to an end. Let us pray. Father, we pray that you would come quickly. It's so easy, Lord, for us to want one more thing, or to do this, or to do that, or accomplish this, or accomplish that. But Lord, we pray that you would come quickly, that you would gather all of your people to yourself, that none would be left behind. Thank you, Lord, that you don't lose a single sheep. We pray for those, Lord, who stray, that you would call them back, 
We pray for those who are injured, that you would heal them and carry them on your shoulders. We pray, Lord, that you would save our children, save our friends, our neighbors, our family members. Save those who you have burdened our hearts for. Help us, Lord, to share our faith boldly, to not be ashamed of the gospel. Help our, our faith to be real with you. Help us to get on our knees and pray when we need to get on our knees and pray, and then to speak boldly when we need to speak boldly, Lord. Thank you, Lord, for the gift of the church. Thank you that we can love one another and care for one another. Forgive one another when we sin against each other, Lord. Help us, Lord, to love your church and to love the journey that you've put us on. Blessed name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.